Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Eileen Ramia. Today, I have the great honor of having Judge Robert Gerber as a guest discuss his observed trends in bankruptcy over the course of his extensive career, as well as his philosophies concerning bankruptcy generally. Judge Robert Gerber served for 15 years as a U.S. bankruptcy judge in the Southern District of New York, where he presided over a broad array of cases, including PSI Net, Ames Department Stores, Global Crossing, Adelphia, ABIZ, Basis Yield Alpha Fund, Lyondell Chemical, Bearing Point, DBSD North America, Chemtura, Pinnacle Airlines, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and General Motors. He retired from the bench in 2016. Over the course of his judicial tenure, Judge Gerber presided over more than 20 cases with over $100 million in debt, including 10 cases with over a billion dollars in debt, and issued approximately 200 opinions, principally in the business bankruptcy and corporate governance areas. He was named one of the nation's outstanding bankruptcy judges six times. Prior to his appointment to the bench in 2000, Judge Gerber practiced at Fried Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson, where he specialized in securities and commercial litigation, and thereafter, bankruptcy litigation and counseling. He also served as first lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force from 1971 to 1972, where he served in the areas of military procurement and production and legal assistance to Air Force personnel and their families. Presently, Judge Gerber is of counsel at Joseph Haig Aronson, LLC, and is an adjunct professor of law at Columbia Law School, his alma mater, where he has taught Columbia's advanced bankruptcy seminar since 2012. He is a contributing author to Collier on Bankruptcy and a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy. Thank you for being here today, Judge. Thanks, Eileen. Let me uh, say at the outset uh, that you'll hear more than a few personal opinions of mine, and that I'm not speaking, of course, for any sitting judge. So let's dive right in. It's now been almost exactly 50 years since you worked on your first bankruptcy matter, and nearly 25 since you went on the bench. I imagine that over that time, you've seen any number of trends. What have they been? Eileen, I've seen some pretty dramatic changes, especially since I started on my first uh, bankruptcy case, but even since I've gone on the bench, uh, several of which we'll be expanding on as we talk uh, today. I think there are more than a dozen that I can identify. Some involve market forces and the capital structures of the debtors in the cases on our watch. Some involve the players in our cases and the resulting case dynamics, and some involve the rules of decision and how bankruptcy judges are allowed to decide things. And all of that is even though the ultimate goals and underpinnings of a bankruptcy policy as we know it, of getting greater recoveries for creditors, equality of treatment for those similarly situated, reorganizing companies, saving jobs, helping communities, and so forth, haven't changed in the slightest. I want to turn to the first category of trends that you spoke of, market forces and capital structures. What were you referring to there? Speaking of several, a major trend was the hugely increased prevalence of secured debt, 
covering all or nearly all of a given debtor's assets, with second and third lien debt uh, becoming the fulcrum security in cases where there would in fact be enough value in the estate to get beyond the first lien debt, and with unsecured creditors not infrequently being entirely out of the money. Another is a lack of liquidity in our cases, with cash subject to liens and without much cash to start with, putting debtors into situations where their ability to use their cash would require accommodations by their pre-petition secured lenders. And dip financing from anyone other than the pre-petition lenders would be exceedingly difficult to obtain because of the natural reluctance of uh, new lenders to get into a priming fight with the old pre-petition lenders, and of course, the inability to give pre-petition lenders any adequate protection. And another trend I saw was the increased prevalence of mass tort Chapter 11 cases and debate over the use of bankruptcy mechanisms to address claims that in the absence of bankruptcy would be decided in jury trials and over when it might be too soon to seek uh, bankruptcy relief. So you then also spoke of case dynamics. Yes. Some of them flow from the matters that I uh, just uh, mentioned. As a result of all of that secured debt that I spoke of just a moment ago and the lack of liquidity in our cases, we have the need to go virtually immediately to 363 sales. There are limits on uh, cash collateral, on the use of cash collateral, and difficulties in getting additional dip financing, especially from third parties, present challenges to the parties. And we see milestones and restrictions on lengthy marketing of the debtor, making leisurely sale processes uh, virtually uh, impossible. The increased prevalence of secured debt has also resulted in an increased prevalence of credit bidding in the 363 sales that have now become so common. And as a result of several of the trends that I, I just commented on, we see an increased prevalence of post-confirmation litigation trusts with avoidance actions against and uh, actions against officers and directors being the only avenue for unsecured creditor recoveries. I can't claim credit for inventing the term, but I'd commonly refer to cases of this type, first a 363 sale, then a liquidating plan and formation of a liquid litigation trust as sell and sue cases. Then Eileen, much more than when the modern code was enacted in 1978, we've come to see multi-debtor cases with various individual debtors in the enterprise having major claims against each other. So I'm talking about inter-debtor disputes and not the more traditional inter-creditor disputes, although obviously certain creditors are going to be invested in one debtor or another. And that raises questions as to whether we need to suffered the expense of multiple fiduciaries, multiple committees, how much we need to do to separate private needs and concerns when they're transposed into controlling particular debtors or having a stake in the outcome and the recoveries vis-a-vis certain debtors. The code gives us minimal tools to deal with issues of that character. And then another, which I suspect is going to be familiar to all of your listeners, is the increased prevalence of distressed debt investors who entered the case as a matter of choice, as contrasted to creditors who were left holding the bag. I can talk about that some, and I will, 
but most of your listeners will already know a lot about that. Then, because of uh, the things I mentioned, large cases have tended to be much more about one bunch of creditors against another as compared to the traditional myth, increasingly a myth, of the debtor against its creditors. And finally, we've seen an increased trading in the course of cases as contrasted to waiting for the distributions at the end. And Judge, you also spoke about changes in the law and also in bankruptcy judges' abilities to implement at least what those judges may view as traditional bankruptcy policy. Yeah, we've seen a lot of that. Not always for the better, though the first of those that I'm going to mention and the last two of them have been tremendously beneficial. The first, a tremendously beneficial one in my view, is the increasing development of what I call the common law of bankruptcy. It's a federal common law, of course. It's not new. It goes back to the doctrine of necessity, which dates back to the railroad reorganization cases of the 1870s. That's 150 years ago. And you can see it more recently in the 363 doctrine in the Second Circuit's 1983 Lionel decision in the early days of the code, the law we have applicable to the approval of settlements, which are hugely important in Chapter 11 cases. And we've seen it more recently or at least what seemingly a respect for that authority, which lacks specific underpinnings in the text of the code, by the Supreme Court in its 2017 Jevic decision, which came down after I left the bench. But I've seen bankruptcy common law judicially acknowledged to only a very modest extent. And when I talk about bankruptcy common law, I sometimes feel like the kid who said the emperor's got no clothes. But bankruptcy common law is real, and it was applied, for example, in the LTL Third uh, Circuit decision just a few weeks ago. But then she also went on to say that a number of other things you've seen, at least in your view, don't appear to always have been for the better. Yes. One is lobbying that's distorted the carefully crafted balances of the code as they were originally enacted in 1878. Examples one can find are the 1984 Shopping Center Amendments and, in particular, our 2005 Amendments and what we call BEPSIPA. Eileen, I must say that I'm much more comfortable with the legislative proposals that have been made by what I call good government groups, like the ABI, the American Bankruptcy Institute, the National Bankruptcy Conference, the American College of Bankruptcy. I like those much, much more than those that are urged to be in place and which sadly were put in place by uh, lobbyists with private agendas. One of many examples that I could give you of that is the safe harbors. Although the aspects of the safe harbors were unnecessary to start with, some of the earliest changes, such as not making clearinghouses or intermediaries uh, liable, were fine, unnecessary, but fine and not at all detrimental. But now there have been cases that have held that the participation of a financial institution in the middle of the chain of handing off value from one entity to the next, in an LBO, for example, even if the financial institution itself isn't being attacked, immunizes the entire LBO from constructive fraudulent transfer avoidance. 
I've heard some say, sometimes over a beer or two, that for constructive traditional fraudulent transfer doctrine to continue to apply, you've got to hand over the money in a paper bag. Not a change, in my view, for the better. Then we have plain meaning doctrine as impairing the ability of bankruptcy judges to implement traditional bankruptcy policy and strained statutory analysis uh, techniques to try to apply plain meaning doctrine in lieu of traditional bankruptcy policy. Let me emphasize that textual analysis on the one hand and plain meaning analysis on the other, though we very often speak of them together, are very different things. Textual analysis is where we always start. And when practical, finish. We focus on what the code says first, and if it solves our problems, last. But too often we make believe that the meaning of the code is plain when it really isn't. And that leads to too many wrong outcomes, in my humble opinion, or to faulty reasoning, even when the outcome is right. The late, great Robert Katzman chief judge of the Second Circuit, wrote a book. It was called Judging Statutes and Judges Working with Statutes and Why Legislative History Should Continue to be Respected. And I had a great respect for Judge Katzman's book, and I think that with only one possible exception, he got it right. The only exception is that I've had it reported to me by a source I trust that as a lawyer lobbyist, my source actually wrote the legislative history there to achieve a sensible outcome. But that's why sometimes legislative history requires use with a degree of care. When I was still on the bench, I said a couple of times that what counts is the congressional intent and not the lobbyists' intent. And I think we've seen appellate courts decreased comfort with reliance on bankruptcy courts, bankruptcy judges' expertise, and exercise of discretion. I wouldn't quite argue that bankruptcy judges' decisions deserve chevron deference, but I think bankruptcy judges' understanding of the context in which they're making discretionary calls, sometimes even purely legal ones, deserve a little more respect. So, Judge, you said you'd also finish with a couple on the brighter side. Yes. We can finish on a happier note. (laughs) One is the passage and the explosion in the use of subchapter five. Though our principal focus today is going to be on large business bankruptcies, subchapter five has been tremendously beneficial for small business reorganizations. And another is the development of jurisdictions outside of the traditional districts of Delaware and the Southern District of New York. And I'm talking about districts, for example, like the Southern District of Texas, the Eastern District of Virginia, the Southern District of Ohio, Southern District of Florida, with a very clearly demonstrated ability to handle very large and complex uh, Chapter 11 cases. It's like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. If you give people confidence that their cases are going to be professionally and thoughtfully handled, people are going to file there. Judge, you spoke about the expansion of secured debt and how that's changed bankruptcy practice as you've seen it. Can you expand on that? Sure. Though I think, once again, it's going to be very familiar to all of your listeners. Secured debt isn't new in the last 25 years, of course. But the extent to which it dominates debtor capital structures has changed enormously. In my experience, with some notable exceptions, like mass tort cases, 
which are in a lot of ways going to be exceptions to a lot of things we're talking about. And I'm not going to keep repeating with the exception of mass tort cases. A large, large number of our debtors have been coming into Chapter 11 with all or substantially all of their assets already subject to liens. And even if they didn't start that way, they'd have to subject the remainder of their assets to liens as they reached out to get that liquidity that I talked about them needing so badly when they were increasing difficulty in the most recent months or sometimes years uh, before their Chapter 11 filings. When the code was enacted in 1978, it came effective about a year later. Unsecured debt amounted to the great bulk of the debt, even in large Chapter 11 cases. And because of that, the official committee of unsecured creditors played a very major role now, except once again for mass tort cases, that's much less commonly the case. In fact, we now see commonly second lien debt and even third lien debt, which when the first lien debt turns out to have become oversecured, becomes the fulcrum security. Again, with it being far less common, that value is sufficient uh, to put unsecured claims in the money at, at all. So in too many of these heavy secured debt cases, we may need to ask ourselves, is even the unsecured community out of the money as equity generally is? So then one can ask that with the exception of the investigatory function to make sure that the secured debt's really secured and later taking control of claims that can't be subjected to pre-petition liens like avoidance actions, like actions for breaches of fiduciary duty, what's the committee's purpose in life? I think there very much still is a purpose in life, but it's no longer talking about the day-to-day -day conduct of the case. Rather, assuming the liens are valid, the committee's role will be to take charge of the litigation to recover on the causes of actions that aren't already subject to liens. When I used to speak and write about how I'd handle financing motions at the outset of a case, I'd use the shorthand, as people learn in medical school, do no harm. That's why I tend to be very reluctant to give liens on the proceeds of avoidance actions or against actions against officers and directors who might have acted uh, in ways inconsistent with their duties. I do that even when those liens were asked for as adequate protection. Those actions that would then be brought typically by a litigation trust or sometimes on behalf of the estate by the creditors committee itself would be the only source of recovery for the unsecureds. Now, people can legitimately talk about exceptions to everything that I've said. For instance, in the General Motors case on my watch, Although GM had tens of millions of dollars of secured debt, the bulk of its debt was still unsecured. And there was enough value in GM to make quite a decent distribution to unsecured. But Chrysler, which filed just a few weeks before my GM case, before my colleague Judge Gonzalez in the very same court, was a poster child for what I'm talking about. Because of the factors I just discussed, Chrysler came into Chapter 11 fully leaned up. There were a host of benefits from the outcome of the Chrysler case, including, most significantly to me, preserving a going concern 
and providing benefits to the vendors in the supply chain, employees, and communities, but a traditional distribution to unsecureds was not one of them. So what does that mean as a matter of the dynamics of modern cases? A host of things. Debtors tend to come into the case with very limited liquidity, requiring the consent of their secured lenders to use cash collateral, as the debtors have minimal unleaned assets to put up to provide pre-petition lenders with adequate protection. And they need to go to very quick 363 sales before the consent, the liquidity, or both runs out. And then we see those liquidating trusts that I mentioned and liquidating plans bringing those claims as their principal or only source of recovery. I want to now turn to distressed debt investing, which you spoke of. Yes, you can't fully understand modern bankruptcy law and practice, at least in the larger cases, without understanding the importance and effect on the dynamics of distressed debt investing. In that respect, uh, corporate bankruptcy is a uh, changed dramatically since I worked on my first bankruptcy matter in 1973. Now, in in nearly all of the largest cases, which I'd call over 100 million in debt, and many in the mid-market cases, say 10 million to 100 million, the traditional creditors in Chapter 11 cases, those left holding the bag when businesses fail, in large part have been replaced as players in the case by hedge funds and other investors in distressed debt who have become stakeholders in the reorganization process uh, by choice. Has that trend troubled you at all? No. As a general matter, and and contrary uh, to popular belief, uh, based on some things that I said about the conduct of some particular distressed debt investors, which might have been read as being critical of all of them, uh, it hasn't troubled me. It hasn't troubled me at all. Distressed debt investing is not necessarily bad, and it's generally a good thing. Investors in distressed debt provide an escape mechanism for the predecessor creditors uh, who would be uh, left unpaid at the time of the bankruptcy filing. With distressed debt investors buying up the debt, the predecessor creditors can then sell their bonds, claims, participations, and bank debt, and thereby get some recovery on their position at an earlier time and with greater certainty than they might ultimately achieve in distributions on their claims. So we just need to slice and dice our view of distressed debt investing to recognize that the abusers aren't typical of distressed debt investors as a whole. So how have you seen it? In three principal ways. We see distressed uh, debt investing first in what I call playing for the delta, making money by the difference hence delta, between the amount paid to acquire debt and the amount ultimately paid out on that debt. Second, in investing in debt as an M&A device to acquire the fulcrum security or to permit credit bidding on secured debt. And third, trading in the course of the case. Each of these is entirely uh, lawful and not even unethical though, as I mentioned, tactics on the part of certain distressed debt investors in that greater universe have given the much larger universe of distressed debt investors a bad name. Those tactics shouldn't be regarded as an indictment of distressed debt investing generally, 
though for sure it's an indictment of the way some distressed debt investors have behaved. Have there been effects of it apart from the abusive tactics of the few that you've mentioned? Yes, in some cases. Even with wholly benign intentions, a fair number of cases with a lot of distressed debt investors, or ad hoc committees of them, have tended to get very litigious, resulting in the case dynamic that I mentioned before, where the large cases are no longer between the debtor and its creditors, but with creditors fighting with each other. I saw that in particular in one of the cases on my watch, Adelphia Communications Corporation, where the fighting between the ad hoc committees of unsecureds came very close to blowing a very advantageous deal that would have brought in about $17 billion into the estate on a sale under a traditional plan. And because the unsecureds were behind secured creditors who happened to be oversecured, and the secured creditors were drawing post-petition interest at above market rates, the resulting delays in confirmation cost unsecureds a fortune. And an unbonded uh, stay on an appeal by a couple of them cost unsecureds even more. Also, Eileen, there's been a practice in a lot of these cases, perhaps a trend, I don't know the numbers, to pay the distressed debt investors legal fees. Though the cases are split on the underlying legal issue, I think a reorganization plan can lawfully do that if the affected creditors vote in favor of it. But I think we all recognize, or should, that cases can get much more litigious when the litigation is on somebody else's dime. And there's a philosophical debate, as I noted in the opinion that I had issued when I approved the payment of those legal fees, as to whether those who choose to invest in a case should pay the resulting costs, just like an airline in Chapter 11 pays for the fuel it consumes. But you also mentioned distressed debt investing as an M&A device. Yes, I think it's a very good technique, uh, useful when the acquired debt is secured and can be employed in credit bidding or is unsecured and turns out to be the fulcrum security. And in my view, it's wholly benign to the estate so long as the estate employs appropriate measures to maximize its value. And you mentioned trading. Yes. That's, of course, buying and selling debt in the course of the case, or at least that's the what we mean by trading, as compared and contrasted to waiting for the ultimate distributions to creditors at the end. And are you okay with that as well? Yes, that too is fine. And those who trade shouldn't feel unwelcome in our cases, so long as they don't try to influence the case to advance uh, trading ends. But in my view, bankruptcy cases have to be run for the benefit of the people getting distributions at the end. And the related goals, which we've always talked about, of helping vendors, saving jobs, communities, and the like. Traders have to understand that the cases will be run with the needs and concerns of others in mind, including others who might be involved in different kinds of distressed debt investing, and not for traders' benefit. Judge, you spoke of the federal common law of bankruptcy, and I really want to dive into that. So to start, what is it? The bankruptcy code as we now know it is much more detailed and comprehensive than the nation's first bankruptcy statute way back in 1800, and even the 1898 Bankruptcy Act with its 1938 Chandler Act amendments. And bankruptcy judges, like other federal judges, have had hammered into them. You see it, for instance, in the Supreme Court's Ron Pair decision in 1989, 
that statutes are construed with textual analysis, focusing on the words of the statute and plain meaning analysis in any cases where the language in the statute's unambiguous. As I've noted, I think there's a lot more in the code where the language isn't in fact ambiguous than we commonly acknowledge. But the principles of starting with textual analysis and then using plain meaning analysis where practical are so ingrained in the law that I don't expect any changes in them. But there are still a ton of things that the code doesn't address expressly. And there have been a host of changes in the economic environment, some of which I talked about, some of which I could obviously name, like more complicated capital structures, derivatives, new economic instruments, just to name a few, that hadn't been covered much, if at all, when the present code was enacted in 1978. And even when the code addresses matters to some extent, like 363 sales, sales out of the ordinary course of business, it leaves massive gaps. So there are areas where judges have to implement bankruptcy policy where the code simply hasn't addressed them. So as you'd hope and expect, judicially developed case law has plugged the gaps. And we see a host of things where that's been done. Let's take an example. We know that Section 363 authorizes what we call 363 sales, and we know what it provides. It provides very, very little in the way of judicial guidance. The trustee, after notice and a hearing, may use, sell, or lease other than the ordinary course of business property of the estate. We also know, under rules of construction, which we can dig out of 102 of the code, that notice and hearing are words of art. They mean a chance to object and a hearing if somebody does. But notice that it says nothing about the standards for when you approve it or don't approve it. So if you're looking to determine when a trustee or debtor can sell property out of the ordinary course or what needs to be shown to do that, textual analysis is useless. And plain meaning analysis is useless as well. In fact, if plain meaning analysis alone were employed to construe 363, there would be no substantive limits on the use of that section at all. As I noted in the opinion I issued when I authorized the 363 sale in GM, 363 has no carve-outs from its grant of authority when applied to cases under a Chapter 11, nor does it have any limitations on when sales are for property above a certain size or where the property is of such importance that it should be alternatively be disposed of under a plan, nor is there any other section of the code that so provides. Yet we know from cases like Lionel and its progeny in the Second Circuit and elsewhere, the 363 sales can be undertaken before confirmation of a plan only for, air quotes, good business reasons. That's so, even though the Second Circuit expressly observed in Lionel that 363B, air quotes again, seems on its face to confer upon the bankruptcy judge virtually unfettered discretion, end of those air quotes, to authorize sales out of the ordinary course. So what we have then, folks, is a requirement that doesn't appear in the code, but out of judge-made law. A fundamental principle of judge-made law applicable in bankruptcy cases across the country, the common law of bankruptcy. 
we see similar common law of bankruptcy when we talk about settlements under Bankruptcy Rule 1919, which isn't even a section of the code. It's a rule. And rules aren't supposed to have substantive significance. But we have extensive standards on when that's proper, all developed by common law. But that's not a bad thing. Nobody would suggest, I think, that judge-made law could trump anything to which the code is specific. Even though the code's considerably more specific than any of its predecessors, it still has a lot of holes, requiring bankruptcy judges effectively to fill them. And relief must from time to time be fashioned or denied to better achieve the overall purposes of the code, even when the code is silent. And we see a host of examples of that. In the Supreme Court, we see it in case law holding that notwithstanding the seemingly unqualified right to convert a case from Chapter 7 to Chapter 13, a debtor guilty of bad faith forfeits his or her right to proceed under Chapter 13. That's Marama. We see it with case law holding that the absolute priority rule applies not just to the confirmation of a reorganization plan, as the code expressly provides, but also to structured dismissals. That's Jevic. We see case law, again in Jevic, that recognizes the case law that said it was okay to violate traditional bankruptcy priorities such as first-day wage orders, critical vendor orders, roll-ups, when the distributions at issue would enable a successful reorganization and make even the disfavored creditors better off. Quoting again from Jeffy. Plainly right, plainly an outcome highly beneficial for creditors and everybody else, but you can't find that stuff in the code. It's a creature of bankruptcy common law. And in the law of my old home circuit and district and others, we see respect in first day orders for not just wages, which I talked about, but if your goods are being held up overseas and you gotta pay ransom to get them freed up so you can sell them for your creditor community, other elements of the doctrine of necessity as well. The STN trilogy, which allows a creditor committee or even an individual creditor to carry the sword for the estate to prosecute litigation where a debtor in possession is or might be uh, conflicting, kind of like a derivative suit. The Metromedia standard that permits third-party releases if, but only if, certain court-established standards are satisfied. Uh, settlements, which I mentioned, which have extensive and very, very sensible requirements for approving settlements so the estate isn't giving away the store, and conversely, so that uh, the absolute priority rule is respected. And in fact, we have case law says that it's the most important factor for courts to consider when deciding whether to approve a settlement under 1919. We have use of 105A with respect to matters as to which the code is silent, such as stays of litigation against non-debtors, typically if, but only if, it's necessary to facilitate a reorganization. 
the farmland factors named after the case in farmland dairies out of the Western District of Missouri, Kansas City, for when it's appropriate to approve a dip financing and what kinds of terms are okay and which terms are overreaching. And then, as recently as just a few weeks ago in the LTL uh, decision, focusing on when Chapter 11 cases should be dismissed for cause, because the code doesn't tell us everything about what properly can constitutes cause. So, yes, I very much believe there's a common law of bankruptcy. It exists with respect to a host of matters where the code is silent, including areas where the code speaks to a topic, but only in part. That's a very good thing, in my view, and I think we should acknowledge it and nurture it. Let me pursue those thoughts further. Is federal common law making possible in bankruptcy? For reasons I just noted, absolutely. And in each of the areas I uh, just noted and more. Courts often rely on Section 105A as the legal basis for equitable remedies such as substance of consolidation, for example. Is there too much emphasis on 105? I think there is in litigants' briefs. Litigants have a tendency for dusting it off whenever they can't make a better argument. But not, I think, as judges employ it. We all know 105 can't trump the code in an area where the code establishes a rule of decision. Then do courts even need to rely on 105, given your view that common law of bankruptcy exists? Yes, from time to time, where the code speaks to a matter at achieving an end that we want to reach, but doesn't provide means for its implementation. But as I've noted, and at least I believe, bankruptcy common law is a separate track that in appropriate cases uh, can and should be employed. Much easier and more appropriate to use when there's case law precedent to justify it. Judge, I'm now going to play devil's advocate. Veering away from textualism can arguably remove a level of predictability and uniformity from the bankruptcy process, and it could also discourage companies from seeking bankruptcy, notwithstanding its benefits. How does recognition of common law of bankruptcy address this? I don't think use of bankruptcy common law can veer away from textualism, can veer away from starting with textual analysis. We all agree that the words of the code must be examined first. And if the code speaks to an issue, the words of the code have to be respected and honored. End of discussion. Bankruptcy common law, though, is employed in instances where the code is silent. So if the code speaks to a matter, there's no loss of predictability. And if the case law is publicly available, as it almost always is, matters are no less predictable than when they're governed by statutory law. In the United States and in common law countries, we've been relying on common law for hundreds of years. And we in common law jurisdictions have relied with total comfort on judge-made law in a host of areas. Are there any boundaries then to common law of bankruptcy? Yes. It can be employed only when it's not contrary to something the code says. 
But if the code is silent on a topic, I think there's room for bankruptcy common law to be employed. So this doesn't give courts free reign. I mean, even with equity, you arguably need sort of guideposts. It doesn't give courts free reign because, yes, of course, even with employing principles of equity, you need guideposts. And there's both case law that says, and your common sense and feelings in your belly would agree, that when case law articulates specific objective standards that have to be satisfied, judges must follow them. So the case law lays out precedent and rules and factors that necessarily must be employed. And when they are considered, as they must be, that takes away free reign. It leads to objectively predictable outcomes, which is important both for structuring the next deal that comes down the road and also for providing uniformity of treatment and justice to the parties in the particular case. So at the risk of repeating slightly, every one of the bankruptcy common law areas of which I'm aware articulates specific objective standards that must be satisfied in order to employ. And as I said also, the case law in the 105 area expressly states that it is not a freewheeling license to do what the judge perceives to be doing equity. Now, there's one area in which 105A is used that's deserving of special mention, and that's when it's used to facilitate a reorganization. An example of that is stays of litigation against non-debtors. There are many others. So what is sufficiently necessary to achieve a reorganization. Bankruptcy judges know how to deal with issues of that character, though case law does give bankruptcy judges the power to issue orders to facilitate a reorganization. That, in my view, is a little like Potter Stewart and pornography. You know it when you see it. You know when a provision is necessary to achieve a reorganization, and even more clearly, you know when it isn't. The nexus between the desired order and the reorganization, that's the order's purpose, must be pretty clear. And if it isn't clear enough, it shouldn't qualify. Judge, you've told us about your views about a common law of bankruptcy, but you've also spoken about the direction of U.S. courts with respect to textual analysis and a plain meaning approach in interpreting statutory law and the bankruptcy court's use of its jurisdiction and its powers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I I sense there's a tension that exists between bankruptcy as a statutory system and this idea that bankruptcy courts are nonetheless courts of equity and likely also need a degree of flexibility to achieve overarching bankruptcy policy principles. Am I right in this regard? Yes, Eileen, you are right. Over the years, I'd hear arguments that I should do something or not do something because this is a court of equity. I'm quoting what I would hear over and over again. And I'd hear that argument when the desired action was inconsistent with the code, case law, or both. And I couldn't do that for the reasons I just mentioned. But bankruptcy courts address an array of issues that aren't covered by the code, and sometimes new areas that weren't even heard of when the code came to being. An example of that comes to mind in the recent bankruptcy filings of companies operating crypto exchanges which I had never even heard of until after I left the bench. So we start with principles that are laid out expressly in the code, 
if we can. If we can't, and I think the jury's still out on whether the code will be sufficient to deal with some of the new financial instruments that seem to be invented almost every day. We may once again need to resort to bankruptcy common law. Thank you, Judge. What an incredibly fascinating way to think about bankruptcy courts and their jurisdiction. We're out of time and we'll pause the discussion here to give our listeners an opportunity to digest everything we have spoken about. We'll continue our discussion in part two of the series next week. We'll be chatting about the mass tort bankruptcy trend specifically, the role of common law of bankruptcy in these sorts of cases, as well as whether bankruptcy is still serving its purpose in light of the observed trends we have discussed. Relatedly, we will also be touching on whether bankruptcy should account for and help advance the public good or public interest. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to DebtWire's Legal Lens, a monthly series on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. Subscribe or download Legal Lens episodes on Apple or Spotify and catch part two of my discussion with Judge Gerber next week. Until next time.